the thing that he always asked me was, what's in it for me? Why do I care? What does this mean in plain English? And we got into a rhythm where every time I had to do a briefing to my leadership or to the executives, I would meet with Ken like, like two weeks in advance. So I had time to fix the garbage that I was giving to him. And he would say, Keon, this makes no sense. You know, Keon, what are these acronyms? Business people have spent 20, 30, 40 years learning how to run a business. They don't have the same background that you do. You need to speak to them in simple terms, not because they're not smart, but be because they have spent more time than you have mastering something else. And they just don't have the space to develop a new language, a new vocabulary, and to master something else. And you have no idea what it is that they already have in their mind. From Cobalt at Home, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my good friend and colleague, Keon Williams. Keon is the founder and managing director of Cyber Leadership and Strategy Solutions and former president of the International Board of Directors for ISSA, the Information Systems Security Association. A veteran of the U.S. Army Chemical Corps, he also held a position as a security executive at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. Keon is an author for the certified CISO body of knowledge that's been used by EC Council for professional certification in cybersecurity leadership. We were introduced years ago by a wonderful mutual friend, Jen Hunt, when he and Jen were working on ISSA initiatives together. Recently, we reconnected at this year's RSA conference. Keon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You know, before we jump into the conversation, I've got to say that from now on, when I need an introduction, you're going to be the one that's doing it. Count me in. I would I would be so happy to. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So what I didn't talk about introduction in that introduction, Keon, is there's a story. I understand there's a story about you walking into a bank with a mask on. And uh, while this may become the norm uh, in our short to mid to long-term futures, this has not been the norm in the past. What was that about? So surprisingly, that has generated the most hits on LinkedIn of everything that I've ever posted. I put a lot of time into the articles and I've just posted a random comment about walking into the bank and being the first person in the history of banking to go in masked to make a deposit rather, rather than a withdrawal. And it generated like 60,000 hits on my LinkedIn account for that one post alone. The interesting thing is that I was just being conscious of being a good citizen to other people. I had just come back from a Mine, you know, I spent a lot of time in Doha at the airport. There was no telling what kind of exposure to coronavirus that I may have had. And one of the things that the experts recommend is that if you are infected, you should wear a mask to prevent infecting other people. I know because of my time at the CDC and because of my relationship with public health scientists that you are asymptomatic 
sometimes with these diseases as you are with other diseases. So I just didn't want to infect my banker or the great people at the bank or anybody that I was encountering. And I had just become accustomed to walking around with the mask on after my travels. I completely forgot when I walked into the bank and I got a text later from the bank manager that told me about the brouhaha that I caused <laughs> by walking into her branch with a mask on and people just didn't know what to do. You know, they didn't recognize me at first. They didn't know what was going on. Usually people don't walk into banks with masks, but I removed the mask. I smiled at the camera. I was able to make my deposit. Again, I wasn't there to forcefully remove money from the bank. I really just wanted to put a check into my account. And so it was a good laugh. It was a good story. It was a good introduction to the beginning of the pandemic because this was before they shut everything down. Gosh, it's fascinating. I can definitively say that you are the first person that I've spoken to on Humans of InfoSec who is both a chemical weapons specialist and someone who's also been a security executive at the CDC. Keon, what does a chemical weapons specialist do? Well, in the United States military, both the Marines and the Army have chemical weapons personnel that do all kinds of interesting things. Every branch of the military has chemical people that basically focus on the proper wear use and maintenance of your protective equipment. So you have masks, you have chemical suits and all kinds of other things. But the Army and the Marines are special because they do combat directly with our adversaries. And so my first four years in the Army, I was in a chemical company and our responsibility was personnel and equipment decontamination. And we also aerated this stuff called fog oil by pouring it into a generator, running it through a jet turbine, and then we could use the aerated smoke for concealment for combat operations so people might hear you but they can't see what you're doing and made it much more difficult for the adversary to identify the size of the force and the composition of the force. Uh, the most interesting thing was the chemical and biological response because our mission at the chemical company was to clean people up so that they could keep fighting. And so I know all kinds of interesting things about meteorology, how to plot the fallout of chemical and biological agents in the atmosphere based on the weather and other atmospheric conditions. Um, I also know some good things about disinfection, which I've used in my own household since the pandemic was declared to clean things up, to sanitize eyes, anything that comes into the house from the outside. And where I thought that this was a skill that was not really going to be useful, it has proven to provide some value even years after the military. Um, what would have been fun, I think the most, the two most interesting things I ever did in the Army as a chemical weapons specialist is I learned how to make field expedient explosives to cover our retreat. And so that's really interesting. And I can't do that as a civilian. And I also have fired on uh, shoulder-mounted anti-tank missiles because one of the units that I was in was a combat support unit and we had to be able to do everything that the infantry could do. And so that's probably the most exciting thing that I've done in the military. And I was in the military because I partied my scholarship away at school. And so I often tell people that my initial failure in college led to the best mistake that I ever made in my entire life. Keon, I have so many follow-up questions for you. I'm actually literally taking notes because I don't want to forget them because I think they're good follow-up questions. The first follow-up question I have for you is, we're in a pandemic. 
you were a security executive at the CDC. What should I and my friends and family be doing that we may not be doing today? And then another way to ask that question is we get various tips from, you know, various sources about the behaviors that we should and should not be doing, you know, from your experience, which, which of these really matter? Well, one thing that I'll say about the CDC that was a fabulous experience is just the amount of things that I learned about public health surveillance and the way that epidemiologists and public health scientists are studying diseases. You know, we had some really cool systems that integrated medical reporting that happened at hospitals and health clinics and then fed that to the CDC. So they had the ability in real time to observe the spread of diseases just based on the health conditions. And so we had one system that if you had the right combination of health conditions that triggered an alert that said, you have this kind of disease reported in this location. And then you could actually see the spread of the disease where you could identify that patient zero was in Miami. They went from Miami, it spread to Orlando, it spread to Tallahassee. Now it's starting to spread all over the country. And so some of the things that we do from a cybersecurity perspective, when you're looking at incident traffic or the spread of malicious software on your environment at the enterprise level and seeing where it came in, where it's going, where it's ending up, and how quickly are all of our systems being compromised, the CDC has the same capability to do that from a public health surveillance perspective where they're tracking diseases just based on what's reported within the systems. I think the most interesting outcome both from the public health perspective and from the cybersecurity perspective, is that the answer to every question always starts with visibility. You know, what is the quality of my information? What is the frequency? What are all of the sources of my information? And good information is going to allow me to make good decisions, which really goes into the answer to your question. Uh, The one thing that I encourage everybody listening to consider is that a lot of your public health scientists and epidemiologists have spent decades learning how to study diseases. And it's those people that we should be listening to instead of people who have opinions, who don't have this background, or people who are in um, in the news media, whether it's the right or the left or the center, that might have some kind of motive behind what they're reporting and what they're focusing on. It takes me back to the old school book that talks about how to lie with statistics. You apply that to you know what a lot of CISOs encounter related to the quality of your security metrics and what you need to report to the business for versus what's interesting information that doesn't really matter. I'm observing similar tendencies with the reporting that they're giving for coronavirus, where if you apply it to a security context, the number of things that my firewall stops is less important than the number of things that get through and cause an impact. And similarly, the number of people who have an infection is less important than the people who are going to be casualties or Um, encounter a significant impact because those are the people that need the most care, the most resources, the most consideration, especially when you consider the number of people who test positive but are asymptomatic and aren't having any problems. If our resources are limited, we want to apply the best of our resources to the people who are in the greatest danger from the pandemic instead of jumping around like Rumpelstiltskin or Chicken Little because of the number and the frequency of infection. That's much less important than the people who are really impacted who are going to suffer the greatest harm 
We want to make sure that we're taking care of those people. And I would have never considered, one, the relationship between the two perspectives about metrics or understood what's going on in the news and the way that they're reporting the numbers had I not been at the CDC during MERS and SARS and swine flu and avian flu and some of those other events that happened in the past that leveraged all of this reporting and analysis from a public health perspective. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I think that is just fascinating. And I think that for me as an information security practitioner, it actually it actually makes me feel a little bit better about what's going on. Um, I can recognize that while this is the first pandemic that's ever affected my personal life, there are, you know, very expert uh, individuals uh, who have been focused on this area uh, for a long time. Uh, And this is something that, you know, there are some things that of course are new, Uh, But there are lots of things uh, that people know how to do. Just like in InfoSec, there's a lot that folks know how to do. Keon, I've got another follow-up question for you, which is you kind of casually mentioned in there that one of the reasons you ended up in the Army was because you partied away your college experience. You know, when I think about some of the guests I've had on Humans of InfoSec, one of the patterns I've noticed is that a significant number of people who today are, you know, recognized as global cybersecurity leaders, you know, for some reason or another, uh, a more traditional approach to schooling didn't work. Um, and so in your case, I'd really like to know a little bit more about what was your college experience like and what was your decision making as you were thinking about going into the military? Sure. So it's, it's an interesting story when you consider that I applied and got into one school. You know, I really didn't put a lot of thought into it. Um, I didn't want to leave Atlanta. My parents were in the military, so I had traveled my whole life. And so going away to college was not really a big deal for me. Um, Georgia State has a great reputation academically. And when I graduated from high school and went to college, For my freshman year, I declared accounting is my degree because I thought I wanted to be a chief financial officer because I really enjoyed my budgeting and accounting class that I took in high school. In high school, I was in the honors program because my school in other countries and in other cities was drastically more difficult than it was when I moved to Georgia. Uh, Georgia has a lot of centers of excellence in school, but it was culture shock going from high school to college. And so I got in the habit of not applying a lot of effort, you know, kind of just going through the motions and still getting good grades in high school. And when I entered college, I went into the honors program and my first quarter, because we were on the quarter system back then, I got an F and two Ds because I took honors English, honors philosophy, and I took some other class that was at 745 in the morning, and I was just not mentally or emotionally ready for any of this, you know, going to college for the first time, having all of the freedom that you have. And then on top of that, when I went to Georgia State initially, 
the dormitories were not your traditional five people squeezed into a tiny room. The dorms for Georgia State, I was in a four bedroom apartment that only had three people in there. So we had an empty room. We had two bathrooms, fully furnished kitchen, fully furnished living room. And my best friend from high school was my roommate. And he and I could both cook because we had worked in restaurants together. And so you've got to imagine having a fully furnished apartment, your freshman year of high school still young or your freshman year of college still young and immature and you've got twelve hundred dollars a month between two guys who can cook as a food budget i really was not thinking about going to class you know we were having, <laughs> I wouldn't we were having grits <laughs> oh it was ridiculous we were having t-bone steak and grits and hash browns and eggs and bacon oh my breakfast. goodness i put on my freshman 15 maybe in the first 30 or 40 days that i was in school um the other thing that was crazy was that the dorms were co-ed and we had no adult supervision um, the blessing that came out of all of that, you know, I said that I ended up in the army, but I also met my wife at Georgia State. And so Georgia State has a really special place in my heart because that's where I met the woman that I'm spending the rest of my life with. But I really was not paying attention to what was going on academically that first year of school. And I ended up enlisting in the army the following August after I entered school the uh, preceding August. And, you know, the Army is what kind of kicked some sense into me. Basic training was an interesting um, culture shock <laughs> and an interesting experience. But once I finished basic training and kind of got into the rhythm of my um, school was a goal. I wanted to finish what I started. And so, you know, it was a blessing that I had the GI Bill and I was able to use that to not only get my bachelor's degree, but I loved it so much. I went back and got a master's degree also. It's just, honestly, I was not ready when I went initially. When I finally did get my two degrees, I was completely invested in the learning process and what that was going to do for my life and my career. It's an incredible story, and I appreciate so much you sharing those personal details about what it was like. You know, hearing you describe your freshman dorm, I was like, gosh, you know, my my dorm was, I think, a more typical uh, situation. And, you know, I, I don't need to go into those details right now, uh, but I can certainly envy uh, and also appreciate, you know, the decisions that you made. So, um I want to kind of do a fast forward into the future of your career. Kian, what's it like to be the president of ISSA International? Um, I myself, and I'm sure many of our listeners um, understand what it's like to be attending an ISSA event uh, or to be a recipient of some of the many ISSA programs. What are the responsibilities of uh, leadership uh, for an organization like that? Well, you know, I'll be honest with you. I thought I knew what leadership was until I ended up as the president of the board of directors for a global association of professionals. Um, you know, the hardest part was that I was not elected into my position. I was appointed because the president who preceded me was unable to serve anymore. And so one of the cool things about being president is that my appointment was based on the consensus of my peers. At the time that I was appointed to the board, I was just a regular director on the board of directors. You know, I was doing everything that I could to help out the association. And the 
what I would say is that my peers recognized my dedication to the association and just my integrity and the way that I went about things. The entire time that I was on the board, I insisted that everything that the International Board of Directors did was for the benefit of our members. And I did everything that I could to not ever have the perception that what I was doing was meant to enrich me. It was always about our members and the association. And I think that helped encourage people to vote to appoint me to the board. And because I was a contracting officer's representative, when I was at the CDC, and I knew a ridiculous amount about contract and vendor management, the first thing that I did in my first 90 days as the president was look at the contract that we had with the managed service provider, who did all of our back-end office support, managed the membership database, and all kinds of other things. And one thing led to another. What I observed as a failure to uphold some of the requirements in the contract led to an extended session of mediation and legal dispute and arguing. And so when you ask what was it like being the president, the majority of the time that I spent when I was appointed to that role was fighting in court for the survival of the association and helping transform operationally how we functioned so that we shifted from being governed by a management company into a situation where it was the board and the members who directed what was going to happen, how it was going to happen, set the priorities. And that was a huge shift for the association. Um, prior to my tenure, there had been other decisions, you know, other sessions of the board had evaluated, do we want to be self-managed or do we want to depend on a management company? But the dispute with that management company during my tenure was the thing that kind of pushed us over the edge. I'm excited to say that the leadership that the association has now has kind of carried the ball forward. I ran to continue to serve as the president. But the person who ran against me, we had two awesome candidates. And most of our members had no idea what was going on in the background. And so it appeared that I just wasn't doing anything when I was actually fighting to keep everything going. But I think it was a good outcome. You know, the current president, president has done a great job to keep things going. The board has continued to do great things. And I've been able to kind of step back and instead of focusing on the association, kind of focus on the company that I've run. There was a secret to everybody, again, because I never wanted to appear to use the association to advance my corporate activities. In the end, everything worked out well. In the midst of it, it I think I spent 1,600 hours with the ISSA attorney and with the lawyers and with the board members just going through documentation, you know, dealing with um, some of the e-discovery features that are in Office 365, so I'm pretty good at that now. I never would have had the experience of fighting for the survival of an organization in court had it not been for the opportunity that I had to serve the association and its members when I was the president. You know, it is so interesting to hear about what goes on to support these organizations that folks may not be aware of. You know, when you're doing these things and you're representing, you know, 11,000 members that the association has around the world, um, it's just, it's really neat uh, to hear your story. Um, Keon, I know that throughout your career, uh, leadership has really been a focus. Um, and you've, 
you've told me a little bit about the best mentor that you ever had. Um, I'd love to hear more about this person um, and what you've learned from this person. Yeah, so Cam Williams, K-E-M, last name Williams, no relation, was a non-technical business executive that agreed to mentor and coach and support me when I was at the CDC. You know, we were in different departments. He wasn't in my reporting line. He grew to be a great friend personally within the organization. And we've continued to stay in touch and catch up periodically all these years afterwards. But when I when I had my first job in security leadership, I thought that I was a great leader because I was an expert in technology. You know, I had spent so much time with the NIST special publication 800-53 and all of its revisions that I literally could cite to you specific control families, the controls that was in, that were in each family and how you implemented them technically. The thing that was missing and the thing that Cam beat into my head over and over again was that business people do not care about this stuff. <laughs> uh, the thing that he always asked me was, what's in it for me? Why do I care? What does this mean in plain English? And we got into a rhythm where every time I had to do a briefing to my leadership or to the executives, I would meet with Cam like like two weeks in advance. So I had time to fix the garbage that I was giving to him. And he would say, Keon, this makes no sense. You know, Keon, what are these acronyms? Business people have spent 20, 30, 40 years learning how to run a business. They don't have the same background that you do. You need to speak to them in simple terms, not because they're not smart, but because because they have spent more time than you have mastering something else and they just don't have the um, space in the brain full of stuff to develop a new language, a new vocabulary and to master something else and you have no idea what it is that they already have in their minds. And so it's interesting after all those years working with him, kind of listening to people talk about, you know, CISOs speaking the language of the business and, you know, it's to a point disparagingly saying how you have to present stuff to the business in primary colors and like they're kindergartners. What I realized from working with Cam was not that the business people don't understand technology or security or all the stuff that we do, but from a, if you compare what a business executive does to what a security person does, security people are only doing a fraction of what the business people are doing. You know, if you go to your average CEO in a global corporation, they've got to be on top of a hundred, possibly a thousand things that are all happening simultaneously and then measure the benefits and the consequences and the drawbacks of every decision compared to all of the other things that are going on. And most security people are just focused on, I have this compliant for, compliance framework. I have this risk management objective. I'm trying to get security risk as low as possible by putting controls in place, but there's never any consideration about what does this mean in the context of the operations of the business or what are the business drivers or what is the financial capability of the organization to support what you want to do as the CISO in competition with what the chief operating officer wants to do and the financial officer and the sales and marketing people and all of those other things that are generating revenue to keep the business going and to employ people and to keep everything up and running, a lot of people in security, and I was like this when I started, are only focused on their security mission and don't understand how their mission fits in the broader context. And had it not been for Kim coaching me 
had it not been for him just being a true business person and not a technology person, I'm not sure how long it would have taken for that light bulb to go on. And I was just blessed to have that light bulb go on very early in my executive career because I had somebody who was willing to spend the time with me and to tell me that I was an idiot. Sometimes these uh, important people uh, affect our lives and kudos to Kem uh, for, for helping you to kind of make that mental transition. Um, and kudos to you. Uh, I understand you've actually taken what you've learned, uh, starting perhaps with some of those initial discussions with Kem and then throughout your career as a security executive, how did you come to put together the certified CISO program? Um, I was, I was part of the grandfathering when EC Council originally started the certified CISO program. And what's interesting and unique about that program is that version one of the development, it was basically a certification by CISOs for CISOs. And so they had a advisory board that was full of global CISOs who had all these ideas about what does an aspiring CISO need to know? What does an existing CISO need to know that they might have overlooked or missed in their education? And when I did the grandfathering originally, there wasn't even a certification exam. I had to write a doctoral dissertation that gave, that named, explained, and had demonstrated everything that I could provide to prove that I knew about governance, that I knew about risk management, that I knew about program management, Every one of the five domains required an essay. And then for each essay, I had to provide references who could verify that I knew I was talking about. And then the advisory board for the program would then review the submissions. And so basically a panel of CISO said, yes, Keon either does or does not know what he's talking about. And fortunately, by the time I did the grandfathering process, Kim and I had already been long down the road of fixing the way that I looked at things. And then I had also done their certifications. Um, by this time, I, I had already gotten a master's in business administration. So all of the business things that are required for you to be successful as a CISO were things that I was able to incorporate into getting through the grandfathering process. Then you fast forward a couple of years, because I was on the content committee for the Global CISO Forum, which is the conference that DC Council does for all of the uh, certification holders. I wasn't working for the CDC anymore. I was kind of hanging out, doing my own thing as a consultant. And an opportunity presented itself for me to join EC Council as an employee and then help them get the certified CISO program approved by the Department of Defense. Um, in that process, I had the opportunity to take the book, decompose it, put it back together, rewrite it. I'm the mastermind or the genius based on um, my business background that took a bunch of business concepts and incorporated them in the book. So we spent more time talking about strategy, about governance, about leadership. And I was blessed to have the opportunity to take something that was an awesome foundation to begin with and then take it to the next level. And then after I finished my work, people have come behind me and taken it to another level, even beyond what we started with. And so the certified CISO as a body of knowledge is on version three. I was just in a cool position where 80% of version two was what does Keon think about security and how do we align 
those thoughts from me, from other experts, from other CISOs, from the authors who came before me, and incorporate that all in alignment with the job task analysis and the ANSI slash ISO certification that EC Council has for the program. That is so cool. You know, I often hear questions from more technical security leaders uh, who are interested in developing those business skills. So it's great to hear a little bit more about how that came to be. Keon, we are reaching the end of our time. I'm actually, you know, both surprised and not surprised. I know that we could have talked on and on uh, about different stories and experiences and advice that you have in your career. As a final topic for today's podcast, Let's talk a little bit about Cyber Strategy Retreat. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, This is my first time participating. What's the deal with Cyber Strategy Retreat? So I have been attending conferences, both as a practitioner and as a security executive, for I can actually say two decades. You know, early in my career, I was going to um, conferences and events that would advance my learning. As I grew professionally, I started seeking more executive events. Um, when I was the, when I was in security leadership, and even as the managing director of a company a lot of events are trying to sell me something. And so I finally got fed up and I said, there has got to be a better way to do a conference where the attendees who are paying a lot of money to come to these events, get something that's really valuable that they can't get anywhere else. Uh, One of the other things that contributed to the design of the conference is that I do have a business background, um, both academically and now professionally. And so I literally sat down, did the traditional SWOT analysis, and I said, what is wrong with every conference that I've ever been to and how do I make it better? And what that produced was a small intimate event that instead of putting people together in silos, we're now bringing together business technology and security executives. So you can't have a situation where people say, well, the CIO doesn't know what I'm talking about because the CIO is sitting right there next to you at the table. It's not necessarily your CIO, but I guarantee you if a CISO starts um, disparaging the perspective and the understanding that a CIO has, a CIO in the room is going to stand up and then it becomes an interesting conversation and debate. (laughs) And so that has produced an interesting mix of content and interaction at the event. Uh, The other thing that has been a huge blessing is that I have some really, really cool friends, including you who is speaking this year. But when we launched the event last year, we had two keynotes and four featured speakers. And every one of my speakers who was at the Cupertino event or at the Atlanta event could have been a keynote speaker themselves. I mean, it was basically a who's who of business people, security people, and IT people who spoke at my two conferences and we charged people nothing to come because it was a new event that nobody knew about. I think I'd spent $150,000 to launch a conference that nobody ever heard about. And we ended up having almost 600 people across the three cities where we did the event. And the momentum from last year even with COVID happening, has still allowed us to establish a good rep- a good reputation. The people that we've talked to who went last year are excited to return this year. I'm optimistic that we're actually going to have greater attendance when we do the conference in June because it is intentionally going to be exclusively an online event. But then the momentum from that is going to allow us, hopefully the pandemic will be over by then. But Ron Ross is speaking for us at the as a keynote at our Atlanta event. You know, I had people from Harvard, Edward, 
Ed McNulty is an expert in preparing your board for crisis. And he was my keynote speaker in Boston last year. And so we have good history with that event, but no other event that I know of, unless I've missed some really good parties, is bringing those professionally different people together. And instead of talking about technology, instead of selling tools, we're just talking about what are you going to do to build resilience and prevent your organization from falling to pieces because you're making the right long-term security decisions. And hopefully this thing will continue to grow. I have people who in South Africa and Cape Town and in Singapore are also interested in us doing the event there locally. And it will be a really cool legacy to say that I didn't compete some, I didn't build something that competes with RSA, but I built something that brings 200 people or less together to really make a difference, to really have them produce good conversations. And as a takeaway, they have awesome ideas about how to do security better, whether they're business people, whether they're technology people, or whether they're security people. Very cool. I am so honored to be invited and really, really looking forward to the event in June. Uh, Keon, thank you so much. There's so much more that I want to ask you, and I plan to anyway. Maybe not on today's podcast, but maybe on a future one. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing your stories with us and, and your career path. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt.io a pen testing as a service company. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you enjoy podcasts. And don't forget to say hello. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.